You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the resolve of His Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation, the British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island, or a large part of it, was subjugated and starving, then our empire, beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. Welcome, everybody, to the 602 Club, Trek FM's general geek show, where we will continue to talk about the podcasts. We will continue to talk about the movies here in the fields, on the beaches, everywhere. We're going to keep going. Uh, We will never, ever surrender. We shall never give up. And I'm so excited (laughs) to be talking about the film that we're going to be talking about this week. I've been honestly... 2017 looking at the schedule knowing that this was coming it was one of my top films of the year and of course i'm talking about the emoji movie which we all saw early no i'm just kidding i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) gotta support patrick stewart (laughs) i am talking about dunkirk of course and um i have some incredible gentlemen here to talk about that with me uh i i needed somebody to keep the british end up and so the the one and the only Lee Hutchison, and his first time on the podcast, 
Welcome, man. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a watering hole if it doesn't have a Scott in it. So uh, that's, I feel like you have <laughs> properly endorsed this as a, a viable uh, pub now. Excellent, excellent. Well, hopefully you've just brought the really old scotch. And I mean, that w- that's really the way to get in, so... Yeah, I don't know about you, but I've had one to get me uh, kind of all liquored up for this so I can uh, kind of get the vocal cords as smooth as they can be. There you go. There you go. And then uh, I needed another uh, great man to talk about this with me. And so I chose the one and only John Mills. Welcome back, buddy. Oh, see, you stole my thunder. I was going to say, and he wasn't available, so I showed up. Uh, yeah, it's my first time back in the 602 Club for, in a while, isn't it? It's, know, it has been, been too while. long. It's been Hi, too long. Hi, everybody. I'm yeah, glad to be well, back. Uh, we's glad to have you back. Um, and I'm, I'm just, again, this is, this is a really, uh, I, I think just an incredible film to get to talk about. And, uh, before we dive in completely, uh, and I, I hit you with a pop question, um, you can find us everywhere. Uh, you can find us on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a featured provider there, uh, with every show on Trek FM. We have so many shows now. We have a brand new Discovery show, 602 Club, everybody else, so make sure you check that out. Uh, and while you're there, hit us up with a star rating review. Really appreciate that, and it definitely helps the show. You can find us on Twitter, Trek FM, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And, of course, uh, we're on uh, our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. So it's called the Babel Conference. If you're on Facebook, type Babel into that search field, or if you're on the website at trek.fm, hit the discussion bar, uh, any of those, uh, any of the menu bars, you'll see it says discussion. Uh, hit that and it'll bring you right over. Um, and uh, last but not least, if you're on the website uh, and you'd like to send us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose the 602 Club. That'll come straight to me and any of the hosts that week. And so, gentlemen, uh, diving into Dunkirk, I wanted to ask you because this is one of the films which... Aspect ratio um, it has been a huge thing, and uh, Mike Schindler's not here to give us the lecture on exactly what would be the difference, uh, but I did want to ask you guys, before we even talked about the movie, really, what aspect ratio you ended up seeing it in. So, uh, Lee, uh, wh- what did you end up being able to find the movie in, and, and which uh, versions have you seen it in? Yeah, well, I've got kind of a couple options in, in my city, in Edinburgh. Um, the first time I went to see it, I saw it in digital IMAX, um, and then just the other day I got to see it in 70 mil, but not 70 mil IMAX, just 70 mil film. Um, I've got the option to see it in 35 and digital. Um, so I've got those couple options still to see if I fancy kind of ticking a few more boxes. But yeah, it was been the IMAX and 70 mil screenings for me. And John, uh, uh, what about you? Uh, what did you end up being able to find it in in your new hometown? Well, I was uh, I, I was actually able to find a place uh, near me showing it in 70 millimeter. I've only had an opportunity to see it once uh, so far, but uh, I, I was able to see it on 70 millimeter film, which was, I mean, wow. I mean, like, it's the first time I think I've seen a film print in an appreciable amount of time, uh, and it was it was it was a remind like it was listening to vinyl for the first time in years. It was like, wow, that's right, that's what this was like. For me, uh, the only uh, theater that we saw it in so far uh, has been IMAX, the IMAX format. And um, it, I, I have to say, it was great. I, I enjoyed, uh, you know, him filming all in IMAX. And so uh, having that, um, you know, amazing picture, the presentation was fantastic. Sound was wonderful. Uh, it, 
actually this week, as we're recording this, my wife and I will be traveling up to Seattle, and we are going to get to see it in 70 mil. Uh, so I'm very excited to see it that way. And actually, it may shock some people, but it'll be my first 70 millimeter showing of a film ever. So uh, I, that's that's got to be just an age thing, man. I mean, I, I know I'm I'm the I'm the gray hair of this group here, but, uh, you know, it's so it's so wild that it's such a special thing to see something on film now, you know, like that. That's it it is this whole thing with Dunkirk has really been the thing that's finally driven home to me exactly how much things have changed in, you know, in, in the last several years, you know, 10, 20 years or whatever in film presentation. It just is absolutely amazing that we even have the discussion about oh i'm seeing it in film it's like you know when i was a kid it was like what else were you going to see it on you know like what a, what a, it's it's wild man just to think how how much things have changed yeah it didn't feel like a bit of a surprise for myself when i got the opportunity to see it in 70 mil because kind of retro screenings are quite common uh, place here and the, the projectionist uh projection here in the film house where I saw it in Edinburgh, they're used to showing the 70 mil prints. Obviously, we got Hateful Eight not too long ago. So when like when I hear people talking about, oh, I've never seen a film in 70 mil or I haven't seen this, I'm thinking like, I just saw Aliens in 70 mil just a few weeks ago. And it's still an option that we've got here and one that I, I'm certainly never going to take for granted. There's one place near where we live and it's an Omni Theater and they will do some special 70 mil presentations. Uh, they're not doing Dunkirk right now, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, maybe they will later. But uh, the, the police in Seattle, a uh, good friend of the show, uh, Mike Schindler, actually told me it's one of the top theaters. It could be considered the best theater, he said, in the country. So that I'll get to see it in. Uh, and they are having a 70 millimeter uh, festival. Uh, coming up in August, and unfortunately, I will not be around to see any of the films then. Uh, and they're going to be showing the likes of like Lords Arabia, Star Trek Six, um, some wow. incredible films that I would just like, uh, you know, just love to see. But I am, I'm, I'm really excited to be able to see a film like this, which is specifically something that no one wanted to be in seventy millimeter. Uh, in in the his preferred format, you know, um, Mike, our friend, is 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 known for saying his preferred format is whatever format the director wants, and uh, knowing that this is what Christopher Nolan wanted, I definitely want to to be able to see his vision up on the screen, and so, and I think that you know. I got to say, an artist actually caring what the presentation is like means something when we're talking about a visual medium. And so I appreciate that this whole discussion that we've been having recently in film about like film and 70 millimeter and all this kind of stuff. It's it, it's nice to know that these people and, and, and people are starting to catch on, like taking it seriously. Like it, it, it matters how it's presented uh, and what it looks like. And that's the difference between you know, watching it at home and why I love going to the theater to see a movie presented in all its glory. Yeah, and I think it's good that you, you were saying that like 
a director that's passionate about the format and I think no one's done more to champion and kind of prove IMAX as kind of the go-to thing for big movies than Christopher Nolan um, and then with like the 70 mil for example that this is what he's passionate about and you know sadly too many projectionists have kind of been losing their jobs in recent years or projection projection booths have been replaced with computers so it's good to see him that he's really pushing both envelopes the kind of the older traditional ones and the modern kind of technologies like the IMAX. Well, uh, I, I think that what it really taps into is, uh, you know, it's sort of reminiscent of, it, it's almost like he has a mindset that um, informed why, you know, widescreen even, you know, came into being was television was a big threat to film. What are you going to do to make it so that people want to go and see a movie in the movie theater? This is an age old question. This has been ever since the invention of television, it's been around and TVs have just gotten better in technology. And I think Nolan I, you know, intentionally or not, th this is an extension of that argument where it's like, what am I going to do to make it so that somebody doesn't say, eh, you know, I got a good TV. I can just watch it at home. I mean, I know that when he has these discussions, when he says I, I'm releasing it in 70 millimeter or I'm shooting it with IMAX, he's saying to me implicitly, I'm doing something that cannot be duplicated in your home theater. Come, yeah. please spend yeah. money on it. Okay. That wins the argument for me. Well, and uh, it's it's funny. You know, I wouldn't say that it was a prime example of the theater other than it sounded and looked great, uh, but it did change my experience because of that was actually going to see, uh, it's all Spider-Man Homecoming and Dolby Cinema. And the presentation and the sound was so good. Like, I had such a great time watching the movie, and it's definitely one I can't get at my house. I mean, the seats literally shake you know and it's not like a uh, a d-box experience but the sound is just so reverberationally present in the theater that your seat shakes you know when when something awesome happens on screen and it makes you feel so much more a part of the movie um and mm -hmm. that experience is not something you can have at home and so uh, i think theaters uh you know, in a lot of ways, um, John, I, I consider it kind of what Lucas was always pushing theaters to do, which was about sound and about picture and all these things. And it's it's so important because it really does change the experience to make you want to get up off your couch to go sit in right. now a really comfy chair that's just as comfortable as your couch at the movie theater that reclines in like 20 different ways um, <laughs> with $30 popcorn and not feel like you wasted your money. Right. The the at least the presentation is so good. I mean, you know, if you're seeing uh, the new Transformers movie, I can't help you with quality. Uh, yeah, but the but the thing is, what what was funny to me was, and I, you know, and I'm sure this speaks as much to it is the uh, a film presentation is not going to be consistent. It's only going to be good as good as the equipment or the projectionist or the theater or or that sort of thing. So there's there is variance in. The, the presentation that's inherent part of the process you you know it's it's like the little pops and scratches on a record you sacrifice you know that that crystal clarity of a cd but for a, a more dynamic range of you know what what sounds can be captured and transmitted etc 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 but what was interesting to me was there were a couple of things where like you know that the color fluctuate a little bit on a real change or something like that which didn't detract from the movie for me but at the same time that also drove home for me exactly how spoiled I think you know 
audiences in general have become to the idea of it being a rigidly consistent presentation that whether I see, and you know, you made reference to Lucas, whether I see, if I go see Dunkirk digitally, it's going to look the exact same at the first showing that it is, that it does at the hundredth showing. Whereas that print is eventually going to deteriorate. Something's going to happen to the film. Somebody's not going to thread something correctly, you know, and that sort of thing. So I like it. It's sort of like a double-edged thing to me, but you know, intriguing nonetheless. One of the most interesting things I think beyond presentation about the movie is the way that Nolan structures the film and that the movie is told in three different parts from air, land, and sea, and it's done non-linearly. And so I wanted to ask uh, both of you how you felt that worked for the movie like, and as telling this story to which we all do know the end of, which is the miracle of Dunkirk. I mean, that's why we're telling this story. Um, I think for me, like, I was slightly frustrated because I've all but avoided reading or doing anything to do with this movie outside of the trailers and some of the most basic news. And I think it was like almost a few hours just before I went into the movie, like, I just saw online that, oh, it's got this sort of time structure. And I was like, oh, I was so close to getting into this film and not knowing that was going to be sort of the plot. And, um, when I got there, and I would have, I think my mind would have been blown just sitting there in the cinema and going, "Oh, this is so. This one plot's going to be one week. This is going to be an hour. This is going to be a day." I think that would have been like quite the treat. Um, but I, I really liked it. I think it was such a unique way to tell the story. It almost like you go into a film like Dunkirk and you think, right, we're going to get the kind of whole story. We're going to see a lot of the Germans, a lot of the conflict, how it got to that stage. But it feels like we've gone to, let's cut all that out and make sort of the third act, as it were, just have everything coming together. And I think when you're watching it the first time, you're waiting for that moment that all the streams cross. And I think it's harder to sort of just relax into the movie you're sort of thinking ah so if this part's here this part's going to connect up here and here um as opposed to sort of just going along with it and i think when i watched it the second time i was just totally relaxed into that and i think it flowed really well and i think it's such an interesting way and a bold way to do it i feel like nolan's used kind of all his scope and scale experience on things like the dark knight interstellar and inception while at the same time taking those kind of interesting structures that he's learned with memento inception and really crafting what i would say is a pretty unique big blockbuster movie i i completely agree uh the structure of the film is is so bold to me that it basically the only thing i could compare it to when somebody asked me was it's structured like a novel like it reminded me of reading something like the perfect storm or something like that where you can jump back i mean in, in a sense it's almost like lord of the rings where you know you're you're going through the six books of lord of the rings and at you know in in book 4 you have to go all the way back to what was going on in book 2 and you know or i'm t- right after you know the beginning of book 3 because it's two divergent stories but the way everything came together what what i to add on to what you said, Lee, is what I loved. There was one moment that I loved, and we're—I mean, we're obviously we're we're okay oh, with yeah, talking about spoiler. specific points, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, is what re- what really made it jump out to me, and I know it's sort of a weird thing, but what really made it jump out to me was uh, when his wingman went down and he saw the hand, and from Tom Hardy's perspective, he was like, "Oh, he's waving. Okay, bye. I'll see you. You're okay." 
And then when we come back to it, we find out he's getting his hand through because he's like, oh, my God, I'm going to drown and die. Please, somebody help me. And I think that is so like it, it does so much to talk because he Nolan's obsession, I think, through all of his films is the power of perception. And to have an entire film that's structured on the idea of what your perception of things is so limited and you have to move like you have to move around in this nonlinear fashion to make sense of it. Like I was energized watching it. I was honestly, it has taken me days of just thinking about it constantly to actually realize how much I appreciated what he pulled off with, with the structure. And I just, now I'm, I'm desperate to get back to the theater to see it again because I really want to see it again. I was talking about it uh, with my wife after we saw the movie and, and we were both commenting how interesting it was that the trailer showed you exactly what this movie is like. And then the trailer had set the expectation that with the music and, and that kind of like that ticking and that's what this whole movie is. It You are on the edge of your seat, sometimes literally with anticipation of how all this is going to fit together because Nolan uses all of these things to craft this story that's being told from these different perspectives of the war. Uh, and, and I thought that was one of the things that, I mean, it's so smart, obviously, you, you, the, the air, the land, the sea, having all that, like you were talking about, John, the perspective of the different people and how they view things and how that changes the moment you kind of turn the camera around almost to see it from, you know, the person, other person's perspective and all that. And I just thought it, there's never a moment that it lets up, you know, like even to the very end, um, there really isn't a moment that, that lets you breathe until the very end. And you're just like, <gasps> by the time it's finally over. And yeah. I thought that that was such a masterful display. Like you were talking about Lee, Nolan has taken every ounce of his experience to put it all together into this one movie. And I honestly don't know if there is a better filmmaker out there than Chris Nolan after seeing this film. I, I just yeah. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna just say that. And and yeah, we can have the argument on the Babel conference. You can hit me up on Twitter, Matt Rushing too, and tell me how wrong I am and you know how Spielberg's the greatest mm -hmm. thing since individually lapsed, you know, slices of cheese. But I, I just think that nobody crafts a movie like this anymore. I just, Chris is the only one who who seems to have the ability really to do that. I I agree. I think that there is what's and we're amazing on first about name him. basis, Chris. And yeah, I, well, you know, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I call him Sea Dog, but the uh, <laughs> the entire thing for me is. I'm a huge fan of Nolan. That's not a rare thing for somebody to say, but like I'm a huge fan of Nolan and what he has amazed me with, with his last several films is I walk out of them and I say, he keeps getting better. He keeps building on what he's done. How can he top this? I did. I walked out of interstellar. I was like, I don't, how could he possibly do something that's going to captivate me the way this did? It's not, it's, just, it's not going to happen. And so I go in and I'm like, you know what? I'll give any movie that he does a try. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I'm, you know, all of that. But I'm not like on the edge of my seat because I keep expecting the film to, in a sense, disappoint me. And he doesn't. But I walk out of this and it's, where is he going to go? 
I mean, you know, it's a silly question. You know, it doesn't detract from the movie at all, but it's like he, he continually uh, surprises me with his his willingness to keep pushing and building. And it's just I, I don't know where he goes from here in a positive way. I think he treats the audience like complete grown-ups that I can imagine in probably nine-tenths nine of every other summer movie this year. If someone went in, I want this sort of structured movie with three different time zones all kind of running parallel to each other. A lot of them would turn around and go, oh, come on, the audience are idiots. You know, just do something kind of conventional with that. Or why aren't we seeing the Germans? Or why is there so little dialogue? I can imagine those conversations in those studios. But with someone like Christopher Nolan, like you've got to give Warner Brothers so much credit. They just go, we trust you, off you go. And that's something that we see so little of that I was thinking of when you were talking about, like, this is a guy that went, I want to film it this way and release it this way fine, off you go. So many filmmakers these days we hear going, well, I wasn't interested in 3D, but the studio said I had to do it. And hey, guys, it looks pretty good in the 3D. You should check it out. I couldn't imagine Nolan ever making that kind of point or comment. And I think he just, yeah. he, he trusts his audience. The studios trust him. And it's just this amazing circle. And I think we all benefit from getting these brilliant original pieces of cinema. And I think that's something that uh, you are hitting on something, Lee, that I've been frustrated by watching certain filmmakers get hampered by the studio system. And it makes me wonder, you know, what do certain movies look like if the studio doesn't step in to change them? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, ro- I wonder that about Rogue One. Um, yes. I know what it would have been like if uh, the studio hadn't hampered Snyder with Batman v Superman. Uh, because we got his longer version. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think there's something to be said for letting an artist make his art or her art, right? You know, right. Uh, um, which is uh, wonderful to hear that that uh, Patty Jenkins, you know, there's that, I, I think she said there are no uh, cut scenes from Wonder Woman. Apparently she got to do what she wanted to do, you know, and we, the majority of the public love the movie. You know, like uh, across mm-hmm. the board, it's 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 at least a three star movie to everybody I've talked to. You know, right? Um, and I think it's like let they're creative people, like let them make creative art, uh, so it can challenge us and stretch us, and and you know, and I think that's the thing. You know, my wife did not know that this movie had a a structure like this. And she said it took her a while to kind of figure out what was going on. But what she did, she really started to get into it. Um, mm-hmm. I knew going in, I I read like Yuli somewhere. I, I mean, it just, it kind of, I, I was staying away from most stuff. It just crossed whatever stream that I happened to accidentally look at. And it's all that it had, you know, a nonlinear structure. So I knew that going in. But it still kept me completely on the edge of my seat and I think where no one wanted me emotionally. And I think that was something that was really interesting is the way in which he uses the structure to to make you emotionally invested, especially when there isn't a lot happening dialogue-wise. He doesn't really need a lot of dialogue because everybody he's cast is able to portray so well what's happening and then he's using everything else that he's doing to let you know what you should be feeling and what the 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 people that are on screen are feeling too i i think that gets back to what lee was saying about nolan treats the audience like adults uh no no one isn't babying anybody 
we don't get some sort of cheap uh, inserted scene. And that this would be a studio inserted scene. Why don't we have somebody crying and, and throttling their buddy saying, I could have done more, like something over the top, really, you know, let's have that big emotional Oscar portrayal scene. He has the portrayal of people who are, I mean, honestly, just, you know, they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to get out. And so there aren't going to be these moments where they're going to have the big, you know, the the big over-the-top speech that, you know, submitted to the Academy or anything like that. It's just, this is what's happening. Go along. You know, like, I I just, I I think that that, you know, because we've mentioned a couple of times how there's not a reliance on dialogue. And I think that that's... You know, that's something where it's like, these are all guys like they're, they're not going to sit there like yakking it up or talk about the girl they want to go see when they get back home or how they miss their dad or, or something like that. They're just staring at the sea and you can see in their eyes, how am I going to get back out there? How am I going to get home? Like, that's all they're consumed with. It's beautiful. I think it reminds me of like, I think it's it's so stripped down that I think that's where the beauty of the movie is that. I think we've all seen amazing war movies, some pretty mediocre ones, but this one kind of stuck out most of all kind of for me because it was it was so stripped down that you can almost imagine it's one of those ones that you can imagine writing a script for this and it's like a thousand pages and then it's going like, okay, chop it down a bit further. Like it's refined to the absolute most basic human needs and it's not got any of those things that you think... Would that have happened or would that not have happened? And it's jettisoned. People making these big, powerful speeches, that probably would not have happened. I'm sure there was someone on that beach out of the the 400,000 that would have done something like that. But for the majority, they would have just been people that were, when I was watching it, almost looked like they were in a zombie-like state. And I think that that takes a boldness going, there's a confidence in that going, this is what it would be like. This is what I want to portray. And I don't want to add on all the kind of the cliches and the stereotypes that come with war movies. And I think that, that I respect that so much. And I, I think Nolan, as a, an editor of his own scripts, I think has done an amazing job to get it to that level. There's a sense of like bleakness about the movie. And, and the beach, you know, and uh, any of the scenes, there was this almost bleached like quality to everything so you kind of felt like all of the color was being sucked out of the world like all the which gave you the feeling that all hope was kind of being slowly seeped out of the film and it reminds me a lot, uh, it reminded me a lot and and a, a scene that really sticks with me from the from Band of Brothers uh where Neil McDonough's character uh is completely shell-shocked and he just kind of falls to his knees and he's kind of shaking and there's no, there's not a lot of music or anything. There's not a lot of um, dialogue at that point. It's just this kind of raw emotion. And, and, and what I loved is Nolan, like you guys saying, letting that play with all of these characters where there's very little dialogue and there's just a lot of, and it sounds bad to say, there's just a lot of staring that happens. And a lot of the movie, like guys just portraying the fact that we are stuck on a beach. The Germans are coming. I love that the Germans are never seen. They're just this malevolent force that's always kind of uh, mm-hmm. behind everything. Like they're always this constant threat, but you never see them there except for their planes. So it's a very, um, I don't know, me- almost mechanical fear well- that's being kind of pushed forward like the machine of war but you're not actually really all you're seeing are the machines 
uh, that right. are against you. And, and something, I, I, the whole thing, again, it, just the structure and the, and the way that Nolan is working all this together, I just think, gosh, we're singing his praises. But it's because it's it's giving us this kind of masterpiece of war film, but not just war film, I think just film in general. Yeah, and actually, you know, since it is a war film, I also want to uh, tip the hat. Something that I appreciated greatly was I was on the edge of my seat. Like, I, it was gripping at certain points with what they were going through and how, like, I, I, I just was very affected by every time the, the fighters and the bombers came by or a torpedo hit or something like that, which was incredible the way it was done. But even more so because as we have moved further and further through the years, war movies almost seem like war movies, horror movies, every movie seems like a, uh, a challenge to see how realistically we can have a body part blow off on screen. And we aren't subjected to that. There is there is a tremendous amount of restraint in the gore while at the same time he's still able to convey this fear and this tension. And I think it is, I want to I take the directors, the filmmakers, the producers who lean toward that more gory stuff and, ha- and force them to sit down and watch this film and say, see guys, you don't need it. You don't need to do that. You can still get an audience without, you know, making everything look like, uh, you know, a zombie film with all of the blood everywhere. You know, the, there is a way to do this. I think there's a there's a definitely some of the techniques that they use like remind you of the old horrors you used to watch with it kind of on the TV where it's the sound that gets you it's think knowing something's yes. coming and as mm-hmm. opposed to that's the knife gone in that's the the shot gone in and you're getting the blood like I was quite conscious when the first time I watched it I watched an IMAX and you know you've got this amazing speaker and anytime you heard a bomb drop a gunfire a torpedo people were jumping in their seats or kind of shaking or moving about. And like for a movie where, you know, very little gunfire is actually shot between people or yet very little see like an enemy, like that presence is always known. And it was just like, I knew it was coming. There was one point in the beginning when a, a gunfire shot happens unexpectedly. I remember watching it the first time, jumping out of seat like, oh my God, like especially in this with the speaker. And then when I watched it the other day, I was like, I wonder if this will play the same way. And I was just sat there in my seat and then that gunshot was made and the person next to me jumped in their seat and I thought, that's brilliant. Like, it's been so long since I felt like terrified or uncomfortable in my seat due to kind of sound designs and kind of the threat and the tension. Because we watch so many movies where we think, oh yeah, we know the superhero is going to make it here. We know this hero is going to make it because we know they've got a 20 act contract. With this, it's like, it felt like anyone and anything could die in this movie. And I think that sense of tension is there from the first minute to the last. One of the things that I was really struck by in the film was the way it talks about and kind of displays and as a conversation about, even though, again, there's not a ton of dialogue uh, about courage and, um, you know, uh, on the boat specifically, the, the main boat that we follow over to uh, Dunkirk, uh, we see three characters, and one of them um, is uh, a kid named George. And he asks Mr. Dawson after they pick up this soldier, who is clearly shell-shocked, if, if he's a coward. And I love the way he asks it, because it's so polite. He's like, 
Mr. Dawson, is he a coward, sir? You know, like, it's mm-hmm. just so polite. Um, and they have this whole conversation about, you know, that he's shell-shocked and he's seen things that, you know, no man should have to see and, and may, he may never be the same again. And the way the movie kind of shows the different types of courage throughout the fo- mo- movie and then maybe the lack of it or... um you know, you might see intense bravery at one moment and then incredible cowardice the next. I, I really like the way that Nolan kind of juxtaposes all of these things and how they all kind of work together in in something like, I guess the only way I could describe it is really kind of the fog of war. Yeah, I, I mean, I, for, for me, I, I really did like that, that conversation because, uh, you know, he, he's not himself. Uh, I don't think he'll ever be himself again. Or he may never be himself again. Like that is that is a beautiful moment because it is. I, I think that there is a a trap uh, that's easy to fall into in modern times to think that these are the first times we're having these discussions. And it was more that you know he he was saying you know let's let's back away, let's let him process. And people understood. I mean, you know, the the Second World War happened not too long after the first. So I, I, I think he, he even has, um, Mr. Dawson actually even has, uh, the, the line where he says it's our generation that, that caused this war and he's the one that has to suffer for it or, or a line to that effect. And I think that there's, you know, there, so there's an incredible consciousness, uh, of that. And I, I think, uh, an appropriate amount of, um, guilt, I would say portrayed by Mr. Dawson, where it's like, what? Well, why did the world come to this point? We were supposed to have been done with these sorts of things. Um, but see, for me, watching it, I didn't see any... Exa- like, I think that the entire film basically proposes and even, you know, sort of sum- summarizes at the end that there is no thing when you're trying to survive such as cowardice. There's ingenuity... And all of these guys are trying to get off of the beach. Was it cowardice for these guys to pick up uh, a soldier on a stretcher and get him onto the boat in hopes that they would be able to go off on the boat as well? Was it, I mean, or was it simply seeing an opportunity that somebody else didn't see? And can you fault them? Can you possibly fault them for saying, wow, I'm so desperate to get out of here. I, I've got to do anything. And then, of course, they they wind up causing that soldier's death. You know, he he would have remained on the beach, but they wind up putting him on a boat that gets sunk. You they know, kind of and turn so, into like the Jonas of the story. Like right. every time they get involved in something, it goes south. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, you know, and it's and it's. Um, I think that there is. You know, how could you fault anybody for feeling a sense of desperation? You know, especially when, you know, you've run through, I mean, it, it starts off, I mean, the movie's relentless, it starts off with him running with his, 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 uh, you know, his fellow soldiers through the deserted town, and he's the only one that makes it out. Everybody else gets gunned down as they're running, and they're so close to getting away. I mean, I'd, you know, try to stop me, I'm going to try to run on water at that point, you know, it's just... Uh, yeah, I you know I, I'm sorry for rambling, but yeah, I I mean for me, I think the movie really just puts out puts out there that you know in a situation like that, you can't fault anyone for just trying to survive. 
And I think there was there was a great line that I, it certainly resonated with me, um, and I think there's definitely an undercurrent a lot of this in the movie where, when they try to give the shell shocked soldier, uh, um, uh, and a Killian Murphy's character is named on IMDb as the sh- the shivering soldier. So <laughs> unlike other people, he doesn't quite have a name and title, but. Um, <laughs> There was a bit where like they tried to give him the cup of tea and then he smacks it away. And then a few minutes later, he turns around and went, go get him another cup of tea. And I, I just thought that is such a British attitude to, okay, this guy's in a bit of a panic. What can we do here? Cup of tea? And then it's like, no, that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Another cup of tea? As if that that is like always the British <laughs> solution. There's just like tea? It, it, I thought, I don't know how that played, but when I watched that, I thought oh, that is a, that is a, brilliant Christopher Nolan joke like it's so subtle and it just kind of just flows under and I I think what kind of makes I think this film kind of also so special is that you know it's it's pretty much just dominated by British and Irish actors you know there's next to no American involvement Um, you've got you know you've got a couple of French actors but I think it's it's so refreshing to see a movie that portrays uh, you know a country's um, time of war and it uses actors that could have been there. It's not like you've got maybe Andrew Garfield or, you know, whoever putting on an accent going, oh, what, governor, you want a cup of tea? It's, you know, it's it's <laughs> those real voices, that, that real Yorkshire accent, that real Glasgow accent, you know, the, the real Essex accent, all those real different accents as opposed to kind of generic accents portrayed by, say, Americans or Canadians. And I think that it's really good to have this movie you think man like i feel proud that this feels such a british film obviously we've got all this american money behind it but it feels like christopher nolan is championing british talent whether that's someone like harry styles for example or all these unknown actors and actresses um someone like jack loudon you know the scottish actor that's alongside tom hardy i think this movie is actually going to be uh, you know kind of the start of a lot of actors careers and i think that this is going to be their their you know their origin story i have a question for you though lee and do you think that because you mentioned this felt authentic even to somebody like myself where i only know uh you know english culture from the outside it still felt very authentic do you think that in the hands of another director i mean obviously you know what other director is going to structure the movie like this or anything like that. But let's say there was an American director or something like that. Do you think that something would be lost in that translation? Do you think that it, it took a essentially British director to make this happen, to make a film, to you know, to get all of the idioms right, to make it feel authentic that way? Or do you think anybody else could have stepped in and done that? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there's someone out there because there's so many great, talented uh, directors in and around the world that, that could have told this story. But I think um, I think Nolan was the perfect person to do it. I think he he's so good at, like, dealing with large casts. And I think you look at the, the cast that he's chosen and he's always so good at casting. And I think, yeah, he he's gone with something that's so authentic, and um, you know, like Dunkirk was, you know, you were saying sort of English culture. I would say it's definitely it's a British, it's just a British story. It's like I was kind of like it's hard not to think with Nolan, for example, when um you think of his movies, say particularly like kind of like the Dark Knight trilogy, like those are very political movies, and I think this one is very subtly political yeah like there's a lot of chat about churchill and like failures in war but i think that what he's trying to do is tell a a story of where britain is now and where it was 
And I think people have this very romantic idea of Britain around the world that, you know, it's that you know, cup of tea and you know, the, the monarchy, God save the queen, all these sorts of things. But, you know, you look at kind of the British culture in the past few years where we had like a Scottish independence vote where we're supposed to separate from England and then you had the Brexit vote which said we want to remove ourselves from the European Union. And I, th- like, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in Nolan's head. Like, I'm thinking, right, when did he start writing this movie or when did this start to go, this is my next project? And I can't help but think things like that influenced it where I was thinking, of a, a line, there was a speech just before the Scottish independence vote where former Prime Minister Gordon Brown came out and went you know, Scots and the English used to fight side by side, that all round graves in Europe and Scotland are Scottish people and English people that died together and then you think of sort of the same with the war itself, Dunkirk you know, I'm going to wait around and help the French get off this island and I think, you know, Nolan's clearly trying to say like Remember all that time we were together, that we, there was that unity and there was that cooperation. Yeah, things weren't perfect. We had all these colonies around the world, but we worked together, we died together, and we were a, a band of brothers. You know, there was tensions, obviously, within that, but that was something that we're, we're missing. And I think if if this was any other filmmaker and this movie, say this was movie was said directed by Zack Snyder or Catherine Bigelow, and this was the exact same movie, I wouldn't think those things were present but because it's Christopher Nolan I'm thinking there's a lot more going on here than is just portrayed and I think that there's definitely sort of messages there about Scottish independence and Brexit that Nolan's trying to say about getting back to those values that we had getting back to that cooperation you know our allies and thinking about kind of beyond ourselves and I think that's I think he's trying to nail that and hopefully it's come across well I was just thinking you know that uh obviously you should have just had Michael Bay, <laughs> and and, it, and the Transformers would have saved them all, and it would have been fine. So, um, <laughs> you know, the thing that that I was thinking about uh, watching this, and I, I really loved this is something that I've been seeing in movies recently about this whole idea where we are in this together, and we're kind of as John, you were talking about the idea of the the courageous thing to say it, it's our fault, you know, like. Uh, it, uh, Mr. Dawson talking about this idea of where the world was. And he has a line in there about, you know, uh, we send our sons to war, but we're not allowed to go. And and now they've been called up, you know, and asked to serve. And I thought that that was so beautiful because it, it's that idea that you know, courage comes in all sizes and all shapes and all forms. And, and um, you know, if you know the story of Dunkirk, uh, even uh, awesomely women were involved with, with uh, this rescue. So, I mean, it was, it was everybody coming together uh, courageously to do something that was extremely dangerous uh, in U-boat infested waters, um, uh, uh, crossing the channel to, to bring these men home and to alleviate you know one of the world's worst colossal military disasters we'd ever seen um nobody absolutely nobody expected the french and the british to be pushed back like that to the edge of the world really <laughs> i mean they're pushed to the edge and and you know- and are about to fall off until somebody comes and gets them. And I thought the, the courage displayed in that, in the small and the, the little bits of, of all of these people coming together 
uh, on fishing boats is, is um, you know, the shivering soldier says, you're nothing but on a pleasure yacht. You know, what do you know about any of this? And, and that we don't, but that's not the point. It's either this or nothing, and we're going to try something. And it also kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, um, Chris Pine's speech in, in Wonder Woman where he says, you know, uh, my father said you can either try nothing or you can try something. And I already tried nothing, you know, and these people choose to do something and it saves, you know, over 300,000 men. Yeah. And I think there's the panic as well, especially that, that kind of drives people to do these courageous acts that you almost think of like you've got these people coming from Britain over to France and then the people in France are wanting to escape back to back to, to Britain. And it's that if you've ever done it yourself and you can see it in the movie that you can see, you know, the coast from France and it feels so close that if you're someone that's thinking, oh my God, we've got all these people just at the other side of the the, the sea, we can go off and save them. Like it feels like it's an achievable goal and it feels like with an arm's, right, uh, arm's length and you can make a difference. Whereas if you're someone that's trapped in France, you're looking and you can see that coast and you're thinking, home is so close. How can I not just get from here to there in a matter of a few hours and it's that hope that can either kill you or inspire you i think yeah for, yeah for sure well and it's something that uh you know just talking about this it, it it brings to mind the idea of survival you know and i i thought it was so fascinating to see some of the characters that we followed throughout the entire movie and then get home and be quite discouraged uh, and, and that feeling that they had let their country down and feeling ashamed of that. And it's not until the reaction of them arriving home almost as heroes and that survival was enough. The survival created a hope that they didn't expect and I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And, and I think it's part of Nolan, especially if you, uh, Interstellar, where I think it's the most uh, pointed uh, thing, which is survival. It is, it is all about the human proclivity for survival. Uh, and that sometimes that is enough to spark hope. And I, I just, I, I loved that when they were not expecting to be treated as heroes when they got home. And yet, you know, as they pull into that station and the guy gives them some beers and they're reading, we know what Churchill said on the radio, uh, and it it changes the whole perspective again that they have about what's just happened and what they've been a part of. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there are there are so many stories in so many different wars um, where if if it had worked out the way everybody th like if Dunkirk had worked out the way that they thought. Did it mean that they were, uh, you know, that that the rest of the world was doomed and Hitler was unstoppable and and those sorts of things? I think that the the victories like this, I think that what people are celebrating to to tie into you know what you're saying about survival is the act of survival. Yes, you're right, gives hope. The fact that you made it out of the tough situation, you know, it, it's the continual battle every day of. I got to wake. I just got to put one foot in front of the other. You know, it's the, the, the motto of, um, you know, uh, alcohol and synonymous one day at a time, you know, just, 
you just you just put one foot in front of the other and i think that that survival does speak to that everybody was happy with them and welcoming them home because the mere act of survival like you said gave hope it proved that there was not an end around the corner that you could keep going that you could find a way I think it, it summed up when um, the guy's like, oh, we need destroyers. Why are we getting destroyers? And it's like, we need them for the next battle. What about here? It's the next battle. And I think when, potentially in a war situation, you're not thinking about, okay, like with Dunkirk, they were saying obviously 400,000 on the beach. They were hoping to get 30,000 back. They're almost thinking that's a battle lost, but there's always the next battle. And if you can fight the next battle, you're still in with the chance. It's when you can't fight that next battle that, that you're over. And I think that was a certainly an interesting line. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was something that was, fa- was fascinating to see, you know, and I, I think there's a resolve that you see uh obviously with the british people in this film of that as that commander uh bolton is is talking about yeah we get as many men as off as we can and then we keep fighting um you know cuz uh his uh his colonel asks him well are, are they going to be talking terms like are we are we talking about you know how we come to terms with Hitler at this point. No, that's, that's we're, we're like you said, Lee, we're looking towards the next battle. And so we have to survive this one somehow. And I think what was so beautiful and incredible about this story and what makes it kind of that miracle is this idea of these, um, uh, Stephen Ambrose is an American uh, historian and wrote a book called Citizen Soldiers, which I really liked. Uh, and it was all about how the normal everyday uh, recruits for the army for World War II are, are the ones who are so responsible for helping us win the war. But it, I brought that idea over because that's exactly what these everyday men and women whose sons are the ones at war or maybe have already been lost at war, like Mr. Dawson, they become the soldiers who you know they become the sailors who go to save uh the the men who are out there trying to save them you know and i i just love that idea that wars aren't just won by the soldiers there they won by everybody at home doing everything that's possible and here it literally meant that they had to go and risk their lives to make sure that happened and it was just kind of I think it was just something really beautiful in that picture that salvation would come from fishermen. Yeah, well, yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, no, that that's that's actually that's eloquent. I like that. Um, but the uh, the thing that I I think also ties into that. Um, getting back to what you were saying, you know, survival, and then you made the reference to Interstellar. Interstellar has this thing where you know, and, and there were some people who I guess didn't didn't care for the metaphor, but they said, you know, love is the most powerful driving force. And that ties into survival in the sense that, you know, to to speak of the citizen soldier is it's sometimes not enough to fight for an an ideal. So I'll I'll sort of pair up uh, Dunkirk with uh, saving private Ryan at that point where, yeah, you have your ideals. Yes. You want to save the world. You want to do these things, but you got to have something at home that you're fighting to get back to. 
that's going to keep you alive. That's going to keep you driving. That's going to make you want to survive to give the hope to, you know, so it's all a part of that chain. And I think that that is what drives the, the citizen soldier is their dedication isn't to the just to the uniform or the country or to the cause. It's to the fact that they want to get home, that there's somebody they love at home that they want to get back to. And I, you know, I think that is, um, you know, that is a, that is a beautiful thing because I think Dunkirk still communicates that without having the customary speech about, I want to get home and, you know, have a spot of tea with Becky Sue and, and stuff like that. You know, I, I don't think Becky Sue is a very British name, but Hey, you know, I was, I was reaching, I guess my American military films are too much in my brain, but, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's not enough to fight for it. Fighting for the cause will get you out there. Fighting for what you have at home will make you fight harder to survive to get back. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, you you think of that. Like, yeah, it's it's always one of those things that you you, you always have to look at the the video footage of the time and kind of so much of the bravado of people that signing up for war to you know defend queen and country. You know, in particular World War One, and then when you get there and the reality sets in of you know trench foot cold starvation you know when you're out there fighting you're not thinking oh i want to slog it to the germans or the the jerrys as they call them you know you're not thinking of those things you're thinking like i'm going to kill people i'm going to do my best to survive and i get home to be with my family you're not sort of thinking like i want to just kill these people i'm sure there are people there but you're thinking that like that's your soul determination it's kill or be killed it's survive or die and it's those base instincts that have kicked in as opposed to some sort of big patriotic decision that's got you there fighting on the beaches and fighting in the air i think and i think it becomes something much more basic which is uh fighting for each other you know, uh, it's not just the patriotic thing of like, we're defending the British Empire. It's no I'm fighting for who's standing next to me. I'm fighting, uh, you know, for who lives across the street from me, you know. So all those people that that went on their boats, you know, they may or may not have people in the war, but my God, they probably knew somebody who had somebody in the war. And so the, it, it becomes about something so much greater than just some sort of like false sense of patriotism it really becomes something so much closer and deeper and i think that's the thing that we kind of see throughout the the, that part of the film and and i think that there is actually a very great uh moment that, that speaks to what you're talking about matt where uh kenneth branagh you know the ships are coming in and he he calls out i think his neighbor like the 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 area that he grew up in or, or whatever. And somebody said, yeah. And he's like, oh, good. You know, like you see that right there in that moment of it literally is home came home for us, came across for us. And you know, like, I, I think that, I think that speaks to exactly what we're talking about here. That like you know, my neighborhood, my, my state, my, my province, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever the situation, I know these people because that's where I'm from. One of the uh, things I wanted to ask you guys about uh, about the movie before we kind of wrap up with some ratings was the idea of sound and picture, uh, because obviously we talked about the beginning where, you know, the aspect ratio is so important. Uh, it, it, It seemed to me that the sound and the soundtrack and the picture all married perfectly to kind of 
bring us along with every visceral moment, every, you know, jumping, uh, Lee, as you said, I I loved, uh, because it happened to me a couple of times where there would be a sound that was so loud. It does kind of make you jump in your seat. Uh, and it just felt like, it felt like a filmmaker taking full advantage of every single resource that he has available to him with those different things to put you in the position of the air, land, and sea. Because as we talked about at the beginning with that different structure, it felt as though I was there in the plane because of the sound and the expansive picture. You know, it it felt like I was in that cramped boat, you know. Uh, It felt like I was on the beach that just seemed to go on forever and, and had no end because of the way that he's used everything in his to his advantage i think that's the the joy of nolan is that i mean i'm someone that's i've, I've been lucky i followed his career all but from the start i, I remember seeing i think i was one of the only people that went to see insomnia in the cinema and like i've watched him like in, in my adult life like progress and grow as a filmmaker and he strikes me as someone that like got rich and decided to just work on passion projects with this money that he's got that with the batman begins that you know he struck gold and now he's someone that can have as much resources as he wants and he uses that to like craft movies and stories that he wants to make and the one thing i think that sums up the sound for me that makes it such a unique christopher nolan movie is that it's like when people make movies that you know you have trying to you try and have as much say as possible over them and with the the soundtrack for example that ticking clock that is under the undercurrent of the movie that's the pocket watch that we all see christopher nolan holding on to when uh, we see those pictures of him and it's that kind of auteur filmmaking where i think like he's infusing every single bit including the sound and like i just cannot look at that picture of him with his little pocket watch without thinking of ah that's the soundtrack to dunkirk now i think that's (laughs) such an amazing little touch and it just sums up christopher nolan and sound design for me i you know i think that um I, i agree with everything you guys have said uh, and the only thing that I will uh, add on to that is that Hans Zimmer, I think, is is a fantastic composer. You know, he has he has some scores where I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, it's okay. But I think that Zimmer and Nolan pair together so well. Like th- this score is so perfect for this. It's like when you know Lucas or Spielberg strike gold with Williams. There's just some sort of communication that happens. And I think the score layers on top of everything else. And then, you know, just with the sound design, no one has always been so good about it. And just, you know, one, one last comment about, you know, we already talked about the gunshots and the jumping in the seat. When they were in that boat that the Germans were using for target practice, not a single shot went off where I wasn't jumping. Where I was like, ah, stop it. Like, and it really did so well to communicate why these guys were freaking you know like not just the bullet coming through but like oh suddenly it's oh god there you know it's a machine gun now you know like it's so masterfully done um so yeah i mean i agree with with you guys i think zimmer is at the very least going to get nominated for uh for an academy award for this score i think he should at least uh and it's interesting too uh, because this is one of those scores uh, i think that and, and it's not a knock on the score, but it's so married to the film that it works best in the film. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I've been listening sure. to it at home and it doesn't have quite the same effect. And that's because it's so made for what you're seeing on screen and to marry with the sound design and everything else. And that, again, that's not a knock on Zimmer. It's actually a, a, a huge praise that he's able to create something which is so integral to the movie that it's it's not something that is isn't as enjoyable when you pull it away from the rest of the film. And and that's a really neat thing, I think, for a composer to be able to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I, 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 I do, honestly, if this movie doesn't win sound design, it's a, it's a travesty uh, oh, the, at the Oscars. Yeah, no, the, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, this is, it's just that kind of movie. And so um, we could go on praising Christopher Nolan and hopefully Mr. Nolan you're listening and, and just enjoying you know your uh, with your tea as uh, you know your, your tea and biscuits <laughs> is you're listening and uh, enjoying uh, our, our copious amounts of praise but I was wondering for you guys where did this end up coming down in a rating scale say uh, out of five or ten so Lee uh, I'll let you decide where you want to go with the scale uh, where do you come down on Dunkirk? Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a five out of five movie, but I, I always have to kind of, because I, I have to sort of rate it and compare it to a lot of his previous work, and that's just the way my head works. I would put it as like a four and a half. I think there's just so much to to enjoy in mind from this movie, and I'm keen to see it a couple more times on the big screen before I potentially have to just make do with watching it on a, a visual medium. I think... The film just makes, like, I was thinking of it afterwards and, like, I, I kind of touched on it earlier. I, I love the kind of the political message that that is an undercurrent, I think, in this movie. And like me and my friend were discussing it afterwards, like, do we feel proud of our country just now? And, and the, the kind of answer was was not really. Um, there's parts that we, you know, make us think, oh, we've, we've got a great place here. And others that we think, just not happy with the way the country's going. And I came out of that movie thinking, man, I... I like I'm proud of our history. I'm proud of our history, and you know elements like that, that spirit that I think we, we've still got to an extent today. And I think, yeah, that, I thought that was quite an, uh, an emotional experience for me. That probably no other movie this summer or any other summer to come will kind of have for me. So, you know, it deserves huge plaudits for that. And even things like, you know, an emotional resonance I had for me was that the high, the for example, the Scottish group that were in the the bottom of the boat, like the Highlanders. My brother actually served in served with them a few years ago so I was thinking oh that's, that's an odd lineage in lineage there and I, I couldn't help but think of like my grandfather he, he passed away a few years ago and and he served in World War Two. and I, I would be thinking of all those times that he would tell me the stories of what it was like to serve in the World War and those experiences and you know the horrors that he witnessed and I couldn't help but think of oh I, I wish I could kind of share in this movie with him or, or talk about it with him and I think when you get films like that where you can talk about it as we have for hours about why this is technically an amazing movie it's often the emotional stuff how you can connect to it that makes it last as long as it will and I think Dunkirk will do that for me so yeah I've got to rate it very highly and I'd love to see it get the plaudits it deserves in in next year's awards uh for me you know it's so funny it I I came out of it I was I was almost numb because I I think that Christopher Nolan continually gives audiences and, and you know or me or whatever films that that are you know quote unquote blockbusters but they they aren't blockbusters they are different like it, it's 
you go into a summer movie, you don't expect this to happen. And it is, you're given art, and it's so weird because it's so hard to react to it in the moment for me because it is a, it's like a, a splash of cold water to say, oh my gosh, that's right. This is what film can do. This is amazing. I think it's a masterpiece. I think that it is absolutely brilliant. I can't stop thinking about it since I saw it. I want to see it again. The simple fact that I want to spend the time, money, and resources to go see it again in the theater, that hasn't really happened with this sort of um, fire in, in a while. And I think that, um, you know, Lee, to speak to your point about I wish I had my grandfather around. My grandfather uh, fought in Burma in World War II. Um, you know, he didn't see his son, I think, except for... You know, I, like, let's put it this way. That time of his life was such that he, I never heard any direct stories about what went on. And my dad, his own son, didn't really know about it. But there's one thing, and, uh, you know, if you'll permit me to share, is he would go to the American Legion uh, uh, stuff, and he would go to the events, and there was one song, and I think it was a carryover from World War One, but it was uh, the song was My Buddy. And according to my dad, they would go there as a family of the American Legion. They would go to the event. And when they would play this song, my grampy, who was a very, very locked down guy, um, you know, not very openly emotional type of guy, he would stand up and he would walk out of the room and he wouldn't come back in until the, the song stopped playing. So I think to have a, a film like Dunkirk is so important not just because of its artistry, but because it communicates the horror of what that war was. And I think that as time progresses, we're in great danger of losing that. And, you know, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it sort of thing. So I think I think Dunkirk is important on so many levels, the artistic and the historical level of of just communicating to people who don't get those stories from their grandparents anymore. This is what people went through. Let's do whatever we can to avoid it. I really like that uh, you you pull that out, John, um, about the idea of history and everything. I I found this movie, uh, you know, (laughs) Nolan unfairly gets criticized sometimes for being cold as a director and not having a lot of emotion in his films. But I found myself in the same place that Kenneth Kenneth Branagh's character was welling up with tears as the boats start coming in. And you feel the the relief that those men feel. Like the the film is so good at put, placing you in their shoes, making you have that visceral feeling like I'm going to die on this this beach unless I do something. Um, making you understand the choices they're making, and then also overwhelming you when you realize that so many of us. <laughs> so many of them will make it home. And I think you're absolutely right. It it is a reminder of the horrors that can be out there and the hope that can come when we find a way to do the impossible. Um, And I think that's something that Nolan's very much about in his films. You know, it's the same with Interstellar. The idea of doing the impossible because that's what inspires humanity to do better. Um, and it's usually when we stop looking at ourselves 
and start looking beyond ourselves to what's out there, you know, like, uh, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful picture because these people stopped looking at themselves, got in a boat to go save people who needed them, you know, and this is an incredible movie and that's, that's putting it mildly. And I'm right there with you, uh, Leah. This is just a five out of five. It's an incredible experience, and I encourage everybody to go see it. Um, and I think it's it's an important experience, as you were saying, John. So uh, don't miss Dunkirk. Uh, and if for some reason you're listening to this and you haven't seen it yet, still go see it, because uh, this is also a movie, as we talked about, that deserves to be seen in the film format on screen, the big screen. So thank you guys. I, I really appreciate the fact that we got to talk through this one. And it's, it's just so beautiful to have a film with this kind of richness um, about the craft, you know, not just the story, but just the craft that we're getting to talk about is, is, is phenomenal. And so uh, thank you, Chris Nolan for that too. We really appreciate that. Um, and, uh, like I said, you can find us everywhere. Uh, uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find the 602 Club. Um, I really want to th- say thank you to our associate producers through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, and they've been supporting the 602 Club for a long time, but also the entire network. And, and we have a huge network. We have so many different shows. We just came out with a brand-new show, The Edge, for the Discovery series. So... We need your help to make sure that the content keeps coming to you each and every week. And in fact, um, you know, we do this you know, for free. <laughs> um, and uh, we do it because we love it and we love providing you incredible content. But that doesn't mean it is free to do. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of the team. Every little bit helps. So make sure um, you just go over there and see how uh, you can help us out. And uh, keep this com- content coming to you. Uh, ad-free and uh, just uh, something that you can enjoy. Um, Gentlemen, I really appreciate you joining me. Uh, Lee, let everybody know where they can find you uh, and, of course, where they can find you online if they'd like to talk more Dunkirk. or I mean, you're a film aficionado, so if they want to talk anything else with you. Yeah, you can find me um, on Twitter at Lee underscore Nostromo. Um, and if, you, if you're keen for a, like an, a you know, companion piece to, to this discussion, um, I actually interviewed Jack Loudon, who plays um, Collins, the, the co-pilot with Tom Hardy in the movie. It was about another movie, but we actually got to talk briefly about working on Dunkirk and his experiences working with Christopher Nolan and the cast. So that's certainly worth checking out. So that's on the Nerd Party, on the Filibuster podcast. So yeah, if you want in a little bit of behind-the-scenes chat on um, Dunkirk, check that out. And John, always uh, great to have you back. Uh, hopefully your seat has finally got its print back in it now by the time <laughs> we finish this uh, episode. And I'll let everybody know where they can find you. Oh, I'm Kessel Junkie Online, as always. You can also find me co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig, which is sort of a zany comedy geeky show that we have going on. You can find me co-hosting over on the Nerd Party Network, Great Shot Kid with um, Mike Schindler, actually. He is uh, he is a lot of fun, and uh, we look at the, the ins and outs of uh, Star Wars inspiration and creators and uh, different topics with that. We, uh, I also uh, co-host, wow, Aggressive Negotiations on the Nerd Party with uh, you, Matt, 
and uh, where we talk about the the thematics of Star Wars, the the sort of in-depth exploration of uh, the storylines and themes having to do with that galaxy far, far away. And then back here on Trek FM, you will find me uh, co-hosting Stage 9 with Mike Schindler, where we look at the uh, work and influences of Star Trek creators. Uh, and we sing Mike, uh, Mike's praises tonight. Uh, so if you want to know, if yes. you want to get Mike really engaged, ask him about aspect ratios on Twitter at Mumbles3K. <laughs> Just do it. Uh, you will not Ask him about it. IMAX. Yes, absolutely. That's a fun conversation. Um, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram at MRushing. Um, I'm here in the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, along with John on The Nerd Party doing aggressive negotiations. And then, of course... I'm also doing Owl Posts, a Harry Potter podcast with Drea Kaufman, and we're walking through each and every chapter of the Harry Potter book series, so make sure you check that out. It's a blast. Uh, and I have one more show, and it's called Cinema Stories, and we are walking through films through the lens of faith, and actually uh, the most recent episode just did uh, the live-action Beauty and the Beast, so check that out. Uh, and you can find all of those and any of our shows on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and check all of them out. They're great stuff. And thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now. Yeah.